In today's Health Unplugged episode, I'm very excited to present a conversation around all things sleep with the amazing Dr. David Lee. As the author of bestseller Teaching the World to Sleep and clinical director for Sleep Unlimited, Dave helps people to deconstruct and revitalize our understanding of sleep in a powerful yet entertaining way. In this conversation, Dave shares his thoughts on why human beings really need sleep in the first place, whether there's any need to concern so much about the many horror stories we read in popular media, and what all of us can do in order to give our sleep a chance to really thrive moving forwards. As a physiologist myself, with sleep science being a key focus area, I could have spoken with Dave all day long about this incredible and broadly misunderstood human behaviour, but we managed to keep things focused, and my thanks go to Dave for his honest views during this wonderful conversation. If you're interested in sleep in any way, grab a coffee, sit back, and enjoy. Um, I did sleep well last night, generally speaking. I'm quite lucky, and I do sleep well most of the time. Um, but I, you know, there have been times where I haven't slept well, and that's quite normal, actually. You know, nobody sleeps perfectly 100% of the time. It, it just doesn't happen like that. Every, every now and again, we do have the odd bad night. But touch wood, recently I've been sleeping pretty well. Yeah, thanks. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, this is one of the one of the subjects that I've been most keen. In fact, it's probably the subject I've been most keen to to delve into and have a chat with with you about is this area of sleep. So, but uh, before you know, before we crack on and get into some of the the nitty gritty, I've got plenty of questions for you today. If you'll be pleased in some ways to know, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but I'll try and obviously keep keep a, a reasonable lid on on my kind of uh, fanboy attitude on this one. Um, Dave, you and I met. Uh, um, unbeknownst to you, actually, about a couple of years ago, in the first instance, at a health and well-being conference based in Birmingham, and ever since I uh, listened to your your short talk on sleep there, I've been absolutely keen and fascinated uh, by the area of sleep, but in particular, trying to get a conversation in in with you and learn a little bit more about sleep, and hopefully, share some amazing insights into this uh, crazy somehow mystical I guess behavior that we all have really in some ways so but if anyone you know listening to the podcast Dave if you've listened to them before I'm very keen on the journey aspect not just simply talk about sleep from a sciencey perspective I'm interested to know you know more about you basically as a kind of clinical director as a sleep pro a sleep professional um, with your company sleep unlimited at the moment I'm interested to know Dave what was what does the early part of that journey for you, I guess, look like? And in some ways, why sleep? What was it that drew you into the whole world and field of sleep in the first place? Yeah, um, it started quite a long time ago, really. I think I was probably seven or eight years old and I went to a mate's house and I watched Jaws oh, um, nice. for the first time and was quite traumatized by <laughs> by watching this film. Um, I still remember quite vividly, actually, that there's a scene in that film where a hatch falls open in, in a submerged boat and a disembodied head floats out of the sea. Yeah. You know I that scene? It. Yeah, yeah. Little bit of cinema. Um, and obviously I was, I was probably too young to be watching such a film and it freaked me out. And after seeing it, I started sleepwalking 
it, it, during the night when I was a kid at home with my, with my folks and my 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 mum would find me in my pajamas in the bath turning the taps on quite agitated and she sort of got me to start counting it's got this quite a good psychologist my mum really even though she's not a trained psychologist but she got me counting from one to ten to calm me down and distract me from this bad dream that I was having and for a few nights that sort of worked then it stopped being so effective and I was still quite agitated and then she then said right we'll count backwards from ten to one so I started doing that and then that worked that stopped working for a few nights then she got me counting from one to ten in French Wow, and then okay. that worked for a few nights and then that stopped working. And then she got me counting backwards from 10 to one in French whilst I was asleep. And that wow. effect for a few, a few days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then after a couple of weeks, I'd obviously processed this trauma and I was no longer having the nightmares and I wasn't sleeping, sleepwalking anymore. Um, and that, that's my first memory of sleep being, an issue uh, for me at the time, even though, and this is what what's one of the things I still find quite fascinating about this is that doing that, that nighttime activity in my sleep with my mum in the mornings for those two weeks, I had absolutely no memory of sleepwalking, of talking to my mum, of counting in French, none of that. It had gone. And that's quite normal for the parasomnias, sleepwalking, sleep talking, bad dreams. They're all types and we off forget about them we're not we don't remember in the morning that we've been doing this stuff and the thing I think that fascinated me about that was that, the, that I was I was doing a really kind of high level cognitive task you know counting in French when you're eight years old or seven years old is quite a difficult thing to do when you're awake let alone while you're asleep and not then be able to remember doing it as well and I still find that a fascinating thing that I was being able to do some really quite complex cognitive demanding task whilst I was asleep and I think that's my first even though I don't didn't remember it at the time I, I remember talking about it afterwards with my parents and, and them telling me what I was up to and, and I'm finding that so bizarre that I, I just really couldn't remember doing that you'd think you'd remember being in the bath soaking wet mm -hmm. <laughs> you know you'd think that would wake you up but no and I, and I was able to do that complex stuff whilst asleep and I, I you know, to this day, I still find that quite fascinating, and that and that was my first awakening to sleep. <laughs> Pardon the pun there, um, mm. and 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 at the same sort of time, I was telling my family that I wanted to be an engineer when I grew up, and I stuck with that all the way through school. I did the right exams to do that. I went to university to do that. I was sponsored by a company down south to. Uh, do electronic engineering projects in my summer holidays but for this company and the idea would be that I would graduate and go and end up working for them afterwards and I absolutely hated it for a number of reasons and couldn't I just couldn't see myself doing that so I so I dropped out of my engineering and quit that sponsored job and needed to grow up really and find out find myself <laughs> I needed to you know I needed to grow up and be independent and find myself and, and ditch this idea of being an engineer that I had since I was eight nine years old because I, I just couldn't face working in that in that industry as I said for a number of number of reasons and and then I 
started getting into hypnosis. I taught myself to hypnotize people and I was really interested in the idea of different states of consciousness and what is hypnosis, hypnotic state, is that a sleep state? And can you talk to people and influence them in their sleep? How do you use this therapeutically? I found all of that really interesting. Um, and I, my A-levels were, I'll just... No worries, no worries. So my A-levels were maths and physics for the engineering, but biology, which is the thing that I was really interested in. So because I got, and I got an A in that at A-level. So I, as a mature student, went back to the university and said, look, I want to do a, a, an undergrad in human biology. Um, I got an A in biology. Can I do it? And they said, well, yeah, you're qualified to get on the course so you can do it. And that's really when I started to get into my sleep journey because the, the biology department and the psychology department at Loughborough University where I was studying were, were, were connected together and they had a world renowned sleep center there. Um, so I learned about sleep on my undergrad and then I had the chance to go back and do a PhD at Loughborough in sleep. And that, so I took that chance and that's really what led me into the sleep world professionally. Um, mm. and, and, and that was, I started doing a PhD in 2000, finished 2004, five. So, um, yes, 20, 20 years ago, started looking at that and have been doing it ever since. And yeah, really not looked back. I, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I'm very glad I'm not an engineer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can sense that for sure. Um, okay. So at the moment, Dave, as well, what's, did Sleep Unlimited kind of follow that fairly quickly or, you know, did you have other roles? <laughs> yeah. So Sleep Unlimited was set up in 2003 by uh, uh, a couple of people who, uh, a chap who was quite interested in, in meditation um, and interested in the link between mindfulness and, 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 and sleep and could we improve sleep that way. And it was quite far ahead of his time because at, the, at that time there was no evidence for that. There was nothing in the literature about that. It subsequently emerged actually that mindfulness and meditative approaches can be beneficial for sleep so he was quite ahead of his time and a lady who used to be in marketing burnt out developed chronic fatigue and realized that fixing her sleep that she did sort of experientially um really sorted her out and then wanted to those guys wanted to team up and, and build sleep unlimited and ask me um if i would come in as sort of scientific advisor really to, to make sure that what they were saying was, was rigorous Mm. so i agreed to join them in 2003 and they for one reason or another they, they left the in 2011 um, and did that solo and in 2013-14 a business partner joined me and we recruited some people and and sort of four or five years now down the line we've got uh, 15 of us okay amazing yeah. right Okay. Um, right. I'm fascinated by a, a series of things that you've mentioned there. For, firstly, the early experience for you, the first uh, initial, uh, you, you said awakening. I love, I like that expression, awakening to how important sleep is, but actually how impacted sleep can be based on maybe other uh, circumstances around us or things that we've experienced and from a, a mental cognitive perspective. Um, but the other thing there that you mentioned as well was in the last however many years we've started to it seems to me like sleep is a, a topic that we've only really recently started to understand whereas if you compare to something like physical activity and exercise you know since the 50s we've known 
the exercise is good for us, right? Basically, that's the, you know, after 60, 70 years of research, that's what we know. Um, but how new is, is sleep as a Well, it's as sleep a research is exactly as old as that as well. We've got plenty of research that goes back 30s, 40s, 50s, and more developed uh, uh, psycho psychotherapeutic intervention development goes back to the 70s um, so actually yeah. this this uh, it's been around for just as long uh, uh, as, as these other issues but it's I think what's really interesting from sleep you know it's, it's what people talk about pillars of health and you've mentioned physical exercise and obviously nutrition and sleep you know these are the core pillars of health but sleep is the poor relation in in that triad ma massively and, and you can measure this in a whole host of different ways i think the, the, my favorite way of measuring this is you can you can judge how popular nutrition is just by the number of celebrity chefs there are on telly mm. master chef south africa you know it's the cooking programs there there are chefs everywhere we are fascinated by what we stick into our faces and um, there are gyms in every town this the physical exercise industry is worth billions mm. uh, the new food industry is worth billions the sleep industry is worth millions you know it's nowhere near mm. yet it's a fundamental it, it's it's beyond a pillar it's the foundation stone on which these pillars rest because it doesn't really matter what your, your exercise regime is like or what your nutrition is like you could have the best nutrition the best exercise program but if you're not sleeping well you're not a happy bunny. You, you don't have a good life. You, you absolutely have to get that sleep right to enable you to feel happy and fulfilled and, and provide you with the energy to do the exercise and go forage in the supermarket for the nice food that you want to eat. So it, it's really interesting how, and, 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 you know, just the way you approach that question there, Dan, you know, I don't really, I don't really know how long this sleep stuff's been around. You know, Azarinsky discovered REM sleep in the fifties. You know, it's it's been around for a long time. Dan Kleitman before that, doing the very early EEG studies and and and, and describing what sleep is in an electrophysiological kind of way, uh, just started our understanding and then how we can then intervene and improve that's then developed. But it has been around for ages, and it's really fundamental. And we've got really good evidence-based strategies to improve it for people. It's just that people are not aware mm. of it. You know, we, we teach home economics and we teach PE. We don't teach sleep in school. Well, I do, I'd go and do a bit of school work and that's great, but it really is kind of so fundamental. It should be on every PHSE curriculum, but we don't pay attention to it. And another measure that I could throw about you is is the amount of reference to sleep that we get in the popular media the number of films that there are about sleep well there's the science of sleep and there's inception and that's about it um <laughs> how many rom-coms are there how many rom-coms are made every year you know it it it's it, it, it's odd that we just it, it, it's something that happens. It's enigmatic. We don't understand it. We shut our eyes. We go to sleep. We forget. We 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 don't get input from the from the world. We'll do a bit, but not much. And we just sort of it just gets forgotten about. It's 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 neglected in the popular media. It's neglected in terms of support and advice. It's neglected in terms of the training that health professionals get in this. A, a GP will spend five years on an undergrad medical degree and probably spend about five hours on sleep. And that's how it works electrophysiologically, neurologically, not necessarily how to fix it when it goes wrong. 
yet we know that GPs, over 20% of people that go see the GP have got a sleep problem. Okay. Yeah, they're do, not trained in how to deal with it. So it's, it's a bizarre situation, really. Do you think that we are kind of, in any sense, still in that situation? Or because in the last maybe few years, I can at least remember, you know, seeing sleep in the news and in social media and popular media and so on. So do, do you think that the tide is beginning to shift there? Or are we still in that position? I think we are still in that position. I, I think sleep's always nibbling around the background in the media. There's always a sleep story popping up every now and again because it's enigmatic and people are intrigued by it mm. and don't really understand it. So when somebody does something weird in their sleep and it, it, it hits the press, everyone's like, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, there have been a significant rise in sleep quotes experts. There's loads of them these days who will, who will tell you that, that they can sort your sleep problem out with with their mixed levels of background and training. But um, I think that's that's really the, the fundamental issue that we've got um, at the moment is that really are so many people who don't sleep well. And we'll, prior to March uh, last year, that number would in the adult population in, in the developed world is about one in four will have a problem with their sleep. 25% and since March we've seen that double there's been some survey data that's come out in the UK that's that's seen the sleep problem problems doubling to 50% with broken routines people aren't doing their usual commute to work and stuff so routines break down more stress obviously about the virus its variants more alcohol consumption and a difficulty switching off from work because they're bringing work home rather than leaving it at work people are working at home and maybe even working in their bedrooms so their bedroom is a workplace not a sleep place so we've seen this doubling so we, you know there's there's millions of people in the in the developed world and and in other parts of the world as well who don't sleep well we've got some really good well evidenced ev techniques to improve sleep so it's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia cbti which has got a hit rate of 70 percent which is awesome Mm. Now, a good drug will work for 30%, not 70%. You know, so we've got this fantastic technology, a huge need, and there's this huge gulf in between. And the gulf is really that the bridge that we need are health professionals who are trained, suitably trained, to deliver those interventions to the huge number of people that need it. And that's where we still have the gap. We don't have those trained health professionals to deliver fairly straightforward techniques it doesn't take long to train someone up to do that if they've got a health background okay so that's the real issue um and it will continue to be that way until some discipline sticks their hand up and says right we're going to deal with sleep whether that's nursing whether that's ot whether it's physio whether it's gp training no one actually owns the sleep problem yet and mm. if you are a hunter and you go into you know see your gp usually Actually, you can get shunted around different people who've got a, a bit of experience in sleep. It depends where you are in the country, big sleep departments in sort of, let's say, Oxford or Surrey or Loughborough uh, or Glasgow. They might be able to help you. But if you're not in those places, then you're not going to get that help. And is it a nurse job or a physio job or an OT job or a GP job? No one has owned it yet. And therefore, it hasn't crept onto the curricula for a nursing degree or whatever. Um, so that, I think, is the issue the moment really is this is huge need a great technology in cbti that can help but not enough people to deliver it that's that's the that's where we're at right now i think okay so it sounds to me then dave like there are a number of 
fairly significant disconnects, if you like, between those various kind of platforms, if you like. So on one hand, uh, we have got lots of uh, knowledge in terms of you know scientific studies and, and surveys and so on, going back many, many years. Uh, but on the other hand, as you've just said, you know, 50%, dub double the number of people are struggling with their sleep. And perhaps there's kind of this rife lack of knowledge, lack of, lack of information um, as a result of that disconnect. And you also describe sleep as enigmatic. That was the word I was looking for earlier when, when we first started chatting here. Enigmatic sums it up really well. So what I'd like to do then is to try and work with you here, Dave, to try and bridge some of these uh, disconnects, try and fill in some of the gaps, maybe at least at the very least for my own knowledge, but hopefully for, for others out there as well. Um, so let's try and challenge, I guess, the way that we, it sounds to me like we need to challenge the way we think about sleep and actually learn basically some of the, some of the basics. So on that one, let me start by asking you, uh, a basic question, though I fear that it's probably not as basic a question as I think it is. Why do we kind of even need sleep in the first place, Dave? So, so there's the uh, enigmatic question about the enigmatic phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. And we still don't really, we still don't really have a very good answer for that. Um, we, we know what happens when we don't get enough of it. And in the short and the medium terms, those consequences, those negative consequences of not enough sleep tend to be more psychological. But over time, they develop into more physiological problems. So if you look at groups uh, of people who have disturbed sleep as a result of their lifestyle, so a really good example will be shift workers. Mm. They're constantly messing around with their routine and shift workers notoriously struggle with their sleep quite a lot. And we know, and we've known for quite some time, back research that goes back to the 1990s, if you don't sleep well and you're, you're on, and, and that's driven by shift work, so rapidly rotating shifts that rotate every two weeks or, or faster than that, uh, antisocial ones that go round the clock, so going from earliest to late to nights, not just earliest to lates, um, and if you do that for 25 years or more, then you tend to die 10 years younger than non-shift workers as a result of the physical health consequences of messing with your routine for that long period of time. A big increased instance of cancers, hypertension, obesity, um, uh, diabetes, I say that, can range of cancers, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, um, lots of nasty comorbidities. So, so that the, the, the end of the, these people's lives are not comfortable quality of life is poor because of the, the, the number of comorbidities that come along with it purely driven just by not sleeping well for such a long period of time so long term you've got physical health consequences that lead to increased mortality um, in the short term it's a psychological issue so we got to do it we can't deal with tiredness in any other way you can offset it with caffeine for example but you need as much caffeine as you like, but you're still going to get more tired. The only cure for tiredness is sleep. You, you just can't deal with it in any other way. And probably never will be able to. Everything sleeps. Plants sleep in quotes. You know, they, they, they quiesce and then they, they're active and they grow. But they still have this periodicity within 24 hour period they'll be active they won't be active every single living thing has this circadian rhythmicity around it that drives activity and rest and 
we call that rest sleep in mammals we'll call it sleep birds lizards sleep i don't know if you'd say a plant would sleep but it's the same quiescent thing that is required by everybody ask this question a lot in training you know what wouldn't it be really handy at the end of the tax year or if i'm a soldier or an astronaut or a surgeon to be awake for three weeks and then sleep for a week <laughs> but just the concept of that is sort of a bit too painful to think about to stay awake for three weeks and then i'll ask people in the audience well, what's the longest anyone's ever stayed awake for and anyone anyone done two days and two nights proper student bender <laughs> a couple of hands might go or big jet lag experience you know you go to the other side of the world and you can't sleep in transit whatever and a few hands go up and then you say right well i've got a room full of say 30 40 people here we're all in our sort of 30s and 40s if you added up all the nights that we've been asleep in this room we have probably hundreds of thousands of nights of sleep between us in our lives and yet only a couple of people have ever managed to stay awake for more than two nights just can't do it and you you know how you feel when you've been awake for two nights or 24 hours without sleep you're not going to be safe driving your forklift truck marjorie no way you know so, yeah. so it, it, it seems to be it's absolutely fundamental and we've got to do it every day and and even the worst sleepers will still sleep and they will still sleep every day or every night yeah yeah and that I, is I, I, sorry, I just find that fascinating that that we have to do that we don't really understand what we're doing but we certainly understand what the consequences are of when we don't do it um and 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 i use it a lot in therapy as well when you say an insomniac comes in and say well i didn't sleep at all last night i bet you did hmm. i bet you did a bit you know if you didn't you wouldn't you wouldn't be alive you know the fact that you're alive marjorie tells me you must be sleeping at we try and optimize it for you but insomniacs will sleep they must do we have to all of us otherwise we're dead one of the things that i before we had this conversation today dave that i found interesting on that basis was to try to look at some of the sleep patterns of like for instance other animals and the couple of examples that jumped out to me were you know that giraffes for example sleep for something like 30 minutes to an hour apparently a day um dolphins have this ability to only turn off you know one part of their brain and leave another bit open so they're kind of partially asleep but not and then you've got kind of sloths yeah. and koala bears that sleep for 20 plus hours of every day and then when i think about us as human beings you know we sleep for um i i think quite quite a long time a period of hours but we're also we're completely down, we're completely unconscious. And as a behavior, that seems to me like quite a strange one when you think about it from a, a biological or even an evolutionary perspective, perhaps, that that's a, a strange kind of behavior that we all possess and we all have to do, as you've shared. Do you think that there are kind of implications there from, you know, our maybe even our ancestors, things we've learned that that's how we've come to sleep naturally, if that makes sense? Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's a few things to say there. I mean, there's the animal stuff. And like you point out, different animals sleep for different lengths of time, different ways, dolphins hemispherically and sleep. Mm. They swim in a spiral when they're one half's asleep and then they swap hemispheres and one side wakes up, the other one goes to sleep and then the spiral in it back up in, a, in the opposite direction. 
which is great. That's the blue, the bottlenose dolphin, uh, the Indus dolphin in the Mississippi River, which is a blind dolphin because it's so muddy, it can't see, and so its eyes have evolved to be, and it's all sonar. Um, and it's really dangerous, choppy water. And they've shown that these dolphins will still sleep significant periods within a 24 hour period, but they get it in 30 second bursts. Wow. Sleep for a bit, yeah. wake up, swim around, sleep for a bit, wake up, swim around. And it, it adds up to hours. From an evolutionary point of view, wouldn't it be good if we could leave that sleep alone as humans? Because we're risky when we're asleep. That the lion mm. can creep up on us and eat us. So actually sleep, we, we'd be better off to do without it. But we've not evolved out of it. We still do it. We still need to do it. So we then seek ways to protect ourselves because we still have to do that sleep. Otherwise, we're in a world of pain. So we find a cave. We make the cave safe. We stick someone on lookout to enable us to sleep. We still, we still got to do it. Sleep's more important to us than safety, really. If, yeah. if you're that tired, you've got to sleep. Sleep's more important to us than than pain. Sleep will block out pain. People in chronic pain struggle with their sleep, but they still sleep. And and sleep will block the pain. It will block nausea, heat, cold, hunger thirst yet you got up this morning and had your breakfast at i don't know half seven by half 12 in the at lunchtime you're getting hungry mm. you know that's five hours later you, you could have your evening meal at eight o'clock and go to bed and go to sleep and not eat until half seven the next day that's 11 hours that's double what you've done from breakfast to lunch yet you don't wake up at three o'clock in the morning feeling starving hungry do you sleep is more important than hunger it blocks that stuff out it blocks out pain it blocks everything out really you, yeah. you know because it's yeah. so important for us um okay. and, and and i think that that's why we've not evolved out of it why we still have to do it mm. um some other modern things have affected us obviously you know we, we spend more time sat in offices looking at computers now we're not supposed to do that we evolved on a planet to go out hunter gathering and farming and what have you we we're supposed to be outdoors and physical and we're now more indoors and sedentary and using blue screen devices. Now that's a really big shift on a species in a really quite a short period of time. And that might well explain why we're seeing more and more sleep problems because we're not actually living a natural life. If you go to more developed countries where people are outside more, are physical more, you don't see so many sleep problems. That's just so fascinating, Dave. Um... I feel like I need to go back to something you mentioned just briefly earlier. You, you said about what's the what's the longest amount of time that somebody's gone without sleep for, and you challenged, or you challenged people to consider maybe two, three days, for example. What is yeah. the longest amount of time that no? Uh, okay, yeah. So the longest anyone's ever gone without sleep is in the nineteen sixties. A ch chap called Randy Gard, no joke. Uh, from the US. He was a 15, 16 year old schoolboy, uh, decided in a, as a high school project, he wanted to see what the effects of sleep deprivation were on him. So him and a couple of his mates went into a, his garage and started playing pinball, which was the go-to game back then, and did play pinball for a few days and nights. And he had a couple of his mates sleeping in shifts, staying awake with him to make sure he stayed awake. After a three or four days and nights of doing this, the local radio station found out about him and went and interviewed him. And it just happened that he was in a town next to a large military base. In, this is in the US. 
And on that military base was a guy called William Dement, who died last year, about, about 94, real godfather, grandfather of sleep research. And he was working with the military because they're obviously interested on the effects of sleep deprivation on, on soldiers. Actually, it was a Navy base uh, uh, on the Navy guys and girls on that base and they found out dement found out about him by hearing this radio show and they went and dra dragged randy in and started paying him to stay awake and started doing psychological tests on him over time and eventually randy went for 11 days and nights without any sleep and he was getting increasingly annoyed and a bit more bit paranoid and fed up as time went on and they just kept paying him more money to stay awake and after 11 days and 11 nights he just said well i'm not doing this anymore this hurts too much leave me alone so he went and they, they kept him in under observation and they eeg'd him stuck electrodes on his head to measure his sleep and he prior to the experiment he was a kind of normal length sleeper seven and a half eight hour sleeper um first night he slept for 14 hours and 40 minutes second night he slept for 12 hours on the nose third night 10 hours 22 minutes i think and then fourth night back to normal so he recovered randy gardner recovered from that 11 264 hours 11 days and 11 nights of sleep deprivation in three or four days but he was young and fit. Older people who are less resilient or have underlying health conditions, you're going to, you'll find that adaptation, that re readapting, that recovery will take longer. But he recovered fully. Um, he recovered quickly. There were no long-term psychological or physiological insults to him by doing that. Um, and the consequences, while he was sleep deprived, were mood he still digested his food, he still breathed, his heart still worked, but he got fed up, annoyed, irritable, paranoid, experienced yeah. mild peripheral visual hallucinations, not florid central focal visual hallucinations, but just slight mild peripheral visual, visual hallucinations. And other than that, no real significant negative consequences for him. So that's, that's the longest anyone's. <laughs> Well, I, sh <laughs> I shall, uh, I shall never, you know, never feel so bad for not sleeping for a couple of days or a day or two if I've travelled abroad. Do you know what I mean? Compared to eleven days, Christ, sure. way, and, just... and yeah, and, and 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 I think part of it is not worrying too much about the odd bad night because we do recover. Mm. Okay. Um, well, actually, I, I that's see... that's really interesting, Dave, because my the question off the back of this one, kind of based on that, but also going back to something you said earlier, is in the popular media, you know, all the chances are most of the sleep uh, headlines or, or posts and so on are usually about poor quality sleep, right? So either not sleeping enough or waking up too many times in the night and so on. The problems, as you rightly said, uh, about that. Given the, you know, the perceived severity of some of these headlines and so on, like things, if you sleep for less than six hours a night, and you're going to die several years earlier or some you're going to get some awful come across some awful non-communicable you know disease i mean what would you have what do you say to that dave for particularly for people that might be concerned as a result of that it in your view is there a reason to really concern about not sleeping enough or, or badly yeah. so i suppose i mean what where we, where I'd start from a clinical point of view would be to sort of go to diagnostic criteria, and there are different types of insomnia. So you can break it down into lots of different domains, but 
you can have a difficulty initiating sleep, trouble getting off to sleep. That affects about 40, 45% of people with a sleep problem. Tends to affect younger people more because they're worrying about stuff. They struggle to switch off their mind. That so, And then you've got difficulty maintaining sleep. So waking up. It's more common in older people, 40, 45% of people with insomnia have trouble staying asleep. And that could be related to age-related changes in the brain. So pushing people and holding them down into sleep works really well when you're young and fit and it gets less good as you get older, which is why older people struggle more with their sleep and wake up more during the night. And then about 10 to 15% wake up too early in the morning, early morning awakening, can't get back to sleep again. Now, in order to meet a diagnosis for insomnia, you've got to have this particular problem, getting off to sleep, staying asleep or waking too early in the morning, three or more nights per week for at least a month. And it's got to cause you daytime dysfunction. Now, if you're only sleeping for five hours consistently all the time, but you're not tired in the daytime, then you haven't got a sleep problem, Marjorie. You're just a short sleeper, and that's okay. Now, you hear this myth that you need to get eight hours of sleep. You would have heard that, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And people get hung up on that and think, well, I only sleep for five or six. I'm not getting eight. There must be something wrong with me. Well, the test for that is, do you feel bad in the daytime? Are you tired? Do you fall asleep? Are you moody? Are you, are you depressed? Are you, have you got daytime dysfunction? Do you struggle at work, at school, with relationships, with motivation? And if you don't, and you don't yawning your head off all the time during the day, you're probably getting enough sleep. You're just a short sleeper. Carry on. 90, 95% of the human adult population will sleep between six and nine hours per mm -hmm. night. Um, but you do meet people who get by on less than that. And you do meet people who need more than that the extreme long and the extreme short sleepers. Um, there are some mortality curves out there of different um, age of age of death for different amounts of sleep. And it, it seems to be that people who sleep consistently less than six hours or more than nine hours tend to die a bit sooner than people who sleep between six to nine, more in the middle range. And we don't really understand why that is. Um, Again, there's a lot of enigmatic stuff about sleep that we still don't fully understand, but most people will sleep between six and nine. A lot of people with insomnia will exaggerate their symptoms. I mentioned earlier on, some people come in and say, well, I didn't sleep at all last night. And I say, well, I bet you did. Mm -hmm. um, we're really bad at judging time in the nighttime. So 15 minutes can feel like an hour and a half or an hour and a half can feel like 20 minutes. You know, we're, we're really bad at judging time in the nighttime. So people, the worse someone's insomnia is, the more they'll exaggerate their symptoms and they'll say, well, I was awake for three hours last night. It was more like two. Um, so actually most people do sleep between six and nine. So it's not something that necessarily people need to be getting particularly concerned about. But if they're struggling getting to sleep, taking more than half an hour, awake in the night for more than half an hour or waking up too early in the morning happens three or more times per week has happened for the last month and causes you daytime dysfunction then you need to do something otherwise you're all right okay I, that's really interesting to hear i think that there's an encouragement in there then for folks listening you know if someone uh, does sleep for five hours a night and they have done so for as long as they can remember and actually they feel fine they get by on a day-to-day they don't actually no. They don't just get by. They thrive during the day, and they feel like they're, you know, taking on life really well. Actually, it sounds to me based on that that there isn't so much of a need to concern. 
but potentially if you're having interrupted sleep and that's impacting you negatively, irrespective of what your sort of quote unquote natural sleep length might be, that's yeah. what the problems are. Would that be right? Yeah, and, and that's how you really measure whether or not someone's got a problem is whether they've got any daytime dysfunction. Okay. And then you probe in for those questions about staying asleep, getting to sleep. Um, it, it, a lot of it is just driven by myth. And you see this all over the press. You will have seen six to nine hours. You will have seen seven to nine hours. You will say, well, what is it? Is it six or is it seven? And some people say, I need to sleep for eight. And we get all hung up on these numbers. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll often do, do that in the, in the talks that I do. I'll say, right, well, hands up in the, in the audience who sleeps for eight hours because you've heard the eight hour thing. And a few people will stick their hand up, but most people won't. And, and then you say, right, well, of, of you guys, keep your hand up if you're absolutely certain that you sleep for eight hours all the time. And then the hands go down because people don't. They, it's very difficult to find anybody who sleeps for eight hours all the time. It's impossible. It's variable. We'll sleep long sometimes, short other times. Um, you know, we're not machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what about oversleep? You mentioned you mentioned kind of oversleeping, hypersleep or, or something like that. You know, if people for those people who might sleep for let's say nine hours or more regularly does the same argument apply to 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 that theory then in terms of yeah. do you know if you sleep for 10 hours and you feel great during the day then that's fine but if there are issues what are your thoughts on long sleeping yeah so it's, it's referred to as hypersomnia so is um the opposite of insomnia hmm. and I, I think sleep is kind of unique in this sense that too much of it hypersomnia brings the same symptoms as not enough of it and we've all done that sleep in at the weekend thing and you think well i've overslept i actually should feel better but you you don't you feel groggy and tired and hungry and nauseated and you think well, that's weird i should feel better because i've i've slept longer whereas actually you don't um so if like you you just mentioned there uh, dan you know if someone sleeps for 10 hours a, a night and they feel fine then they're a long sleeper. That's what they need to get. Um, but if they're not feeling fine, they're sleeping for 10, 11, 12 hours and they feel tired, then actually a lot of that tiredness, that fatigue might be being driven by oversleep. Mm. And th there are a few conditions that are associated with hypersomnia. So chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple sclerosis, myalgic encephalomyopathy, ME, um, fibromyalgia patients will often sleep a lot they're often advised to sleep a lot get going you know, to get as much sleep as you can yeah. and fatigue is a core diagnostic feature of all of those four conditions and it might well be that people who are experiencing fatigue living with one of those four conditions it might be that their fatigue is being driven by sleeping too much so what we try to do with those sorts of clients is say look well how much sleep did you get before you became poorly marjorie well, like seven and a half hours okay well let's try and get you back to that and you, you find that people over time can just ratchet up and we've, we've worked with people who've been sleeping 14 15 hours in a 24-hour period just have got into that habit over time they still feel tired so they'll all get more sleep and more and just keep adding it in and adding it in and you can do that you you, you can train yourself to sleep for 14 hours a day if you want to but I wouldn't advise it because you feel rubbish and then you have no time to actually live your life and interact with people and earn money and pay tax and all that mm. fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So 14 hours of sleep or paying tax. I'm wondering what's, what the best option is there. Um, yeah, yeah. In term, yeah, absolutely. In terms of, um, uh, okay. So long sleepers thinking about that one there, can you, 
can you train somebody to sleep without putting them in a state of sleep deprivation? Can you train somebody to sleep less than they take somebody who sleeps 10 hours? Can you train someone to sleep for seven to eight hours kind of and experience good health right. as a result? So you, you can force people into states of partial sleep deprivation. So if they're habitually a 10 hour sleeper, you, you can force them to do less than that and wake them up after a certain period of time. It actually forms part of a therapeutic intervention called sleep restriction therapy, where you, you restrict someone's amount of sleep, you build in sleep debt, you make them more tired as a result, and then uh, they sleep better the next night because they're more tired. Um, I say this to, to people all the time, I can take any insomniac, the worst insomniac in the world, and I can get them to sleep for 12 hours straight, no problem, dead easy. All we do is a Randy Gardner on them. We keep them awake for four days and four nights. They'll be so tired, mm. they will sleep for 12 hours afterwards. You know, you do, so, so it's possible to do that. You, you can change someone's routine. We, we have chronotypes that people can be sort of better in the morning. Um, but rubbish in the evening and, and the, the larks and the owls can be better later in the day than the, than the owls are. And you can take people out of their natural chronotype and force the owls to get up early and go to bed early. You can force people to have less sleep than they, they might want or more sleep than they might want. And they, they can do that. Uh, they don't like you very much for pushing them into that because it's not what they want to do. And then when you leave them alone, they just revert back to what they did before anyway, in terms of the amount of sleep that they want and when they want to take it. So you can absolutely enforce things on people and change people's routines, but they tend not to like it. And then when you leave them alone, they just go back to doing what they did before anyway. Okay. So the yeah. best thing really is to identify what works for you and then try to attain that consistently. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned earlier, Dave, uh, a fantastic comment that we don't live a natural life in the sense that we, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't wake up when the sun rises. We don't go to bed when it sets. We, we go to bed because it's bedtime and we wake up because it's time to wake up and go to work and so on. You, in terms of the chronotype thing there, i.e. if you're a morning person or an evening person, does that, how much of an impact do you think that has on uh, basically people's health as a result? Right. So if you've got people who are actually evening people, but they're getting up early because they have to go to work and live the social life and so on, does that have an impact uh, on them, do you think? I think it does. I think the consequences are more psychological, like we talked about earlier on, that when you deprive people of their sleep, that they feel the consequences psychologically to start with, and then the physiological problems come later, mm. and that the more chronic health conditions come along later. Um, in terms of whether there isn't any real research out there that suggests if you take a bunch of um, owls, for example, and force them up early, that they're then going to really struggle. Um, but what we do know is that people will naturally go to do what they want to do, like we were just talking about there. Um, so shift works a really interesting one because. If, if, you, if you take a, a hundred people, a thousand people, a third of them are going to be larky. They want to get up early and go to bed early. A third of them are hourly and they want to go to bed late and get up late. And a third of them are what we'd refer to as ambivalent. They're in the middle. Hmm. So if you take a, any typical late shift, the, 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 the larks are fed up. They don't really want to be there. 
you take the typical early shift, the owls are fed up, they don't want to be there. So, so at any given shift pattern, any given moment in time, a third of your workforce doesn't really want to be there. And we don't chronotype our workforce. We, we don't say at induction, you know, op health induction process, you know, what's your chronotype? Are you larky? Are you hourly? Don't you care? Um, it, you know, it would be so much better and people would be so much happier, more productive, less accident prone, better, safer, more profitable. If we said, here's your prototype, we're going to get all you larks and you do the early shifts. You, you don't do the late shift, you just do the earlies all the time because that's when they want to be there. And all you owls, you do the late shift all the time because that's when you want to be there. And then you have a, a handful of people in the middle on the bank to fill in the gaps where people go on holiday or go sick or whatever. That would be a much better way to design a shift working pattern. Mm. You force a load of larks into lates or the other way around. They don't want to be there. They're not happy. They're not productive. They're not safe. And over time, the insult of changing your routine so much causes those long-term physical health consequences. So when we work with organizations who employ shift workers, we're, we're starting out with prevailing upon them to say right stop shifting your workers let your larks be the early team let your owls do be the late shift and don't shift them and then you don't end up with that problem you've got a happy productive safe workforce that's what everybody really wants oh well, we're stuck in our ways here you know we can't do this. We've, done it. we've done it like this forever you hear that all the time it's like right well now let's reduce the rapidity of rotation then if you can't go with optimum idea here's the next step down you don't rotate people every two weeks you rotate them every two months instead of having 26 rotations in a year they would then only have six that's less of an insult yeah so okay uh, yeah um i've gone off on a bit of a tangent i don't know if i've stayed on point there no i love it you have stayed on point that was great i like i love the response it ch challenges me when i'm you know thinking about well-being uh in general but in this case in particular from a working perspective sure and we are so far behind the curve with this you know we've known about these impacts on for, of shift work for such a long time yet we don't we, we're still forcing our employees into Actually, it's a dangerous situation, and and there's going to be litigation coming in time where someone's going to sue the NHS for giving them breast cancer because they've been enforced into the shift working pattern for 25 years, and the NHS know that that those are the potential consequences. So you, as my employer, knew this was going to happen to me. You didn't educate me. You didn't support me. You pushed me into this, and now I'm going to sue you for it. I bet you those cases are coming out in the next five years, and when the first test cases go through it will open an absolute floodgate and um, savvy employers are going to get on this now um just because there's a tsunami coming and it's not going to be pretty well given given that we've known about lots of this for for at least some time the the question back to you then dave is why do you think we haven't changed this earlier why do you think it will take some catastrophic event you know what i mean for us to change the way we think about it it's because of the enigmatic nature of sleep that we don't really understand it. Those people that do, there aren't many around to, to, to get this. Some of the organizations that we talk to are clued up and they, they, they bring us in to talk to their employees and help them out with their sleep and they'll adjust their sleep patterns, but they're few and far between. Hmm. Um, I, I do a fair amount of work in the logistics industry with, with lorry drivers and they're a, they're a special case of, 
group of, of people who struggle particularly with their sleep for a number of different reasons and there's a, an awful lot of inertia in that industry you know that oh well listen and it all makes sense but are we actually going to change anything and do anything mm, maybe not we're going to wait for something cataclysmic to happen and then we will then we will we'll make some changes and we've just started to see these coming now so you, you might remember the glasgow bin lorry went yeah. on the road about yeah, four or five yeah. years ago glasgow a few people um we had the croydon tram um again fatigue related accident we had the coventry bus crash and a couple of other ones which were less well known but um these were all older men potentially uh going to meet a diagnosis of sleep apnea fatigue was implicated in all of those accidents it could quite possibly be the case that those guys had a treatable health condition sleep condition and that was under undiagnosed or was was being ignored and that's caused these really serious accidents and it, it's those sorts of test cases which which will shift things but we're, we're, we're very reactive. We're not, going to, we're not going to be proactive about this. We're going to be reactive about it after the event. And that's a shame because um, sitting where I'm, I'm coming from, I'm trying to prevail upon people to be proactive about these things. You know, yeah. let's, let's sort the problem out before it happens because it will be a lot cheaper <laughs> and cause a lot less distress if we do that. And, and as I say, some organisations are really quite switched on and will, will engage with, with us. Um, but then there's a lot of organizations that they don't know where to get this information from and there's some spurious information that's given out um, mm -hmm. by people who are not necessarily experienced or qualified in this area it, the sleep medicine world is not regulated you can call yourself a sleep expert tomorrow dan if you want make yourself a shiny website and go and sell your services as a sleep expert um you're probably not going to do that but you could and people do and therefore you get a mixed bag of advice out there and that i think again is another issue for that it's unregulated that's a bigger issue for the punter in the street to be able to discern the kind of quality of information that they're getting mm. okay okay so all right so moving forwards from that point then in terms in the absence of any significant i guess societal changes or cultural changes towards this when we focus the spotlight back onto the individual, uh, considering that sleep is really in, in essence, kind of an outcome behavior in the sense that the quality slash duration of your sleep will often, I guess, be determined by lifestyle factors, you know, stuff you do during the day, how much alcohol you drink, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and everyone's yeah. schedules are different, everyone's life, everyone's life is different. What would you say then, uh, in terms of maybe some top tips for things that everyone could do or that you'd encourage everyone to think about in order to best manage their their own sleep what would they be right so you know you get that get that a lot and you know, it's the media will, will ask those sorts of questions a lot and it's really tricky because like you've just said there Dan you know it's lifestyle factors in the day so you could take Terry, he, he just drinks loads of coffee, doesn't realize that caffeine as a stimulant is going to stop get, get, is going to interfere with his sleep. So to, to help Terry, all you have to do is tell him about caffeine and get him to drink less of it in the afternoon and evening. And that's easy. Marjorie, she doesn't sleep well, but she doesn't sleep well because she's had a 30 year abuse history. Now, you're going to be spending a lot more time with Marjorie or referring her to psychology to deal with that. 
And then you've got somebody else who's living with chronic pain, multiple medications, social deprivation, anxiety about a virus, homeschooling kids and all that's falling apart. And you've just got a, a complete cluster of issues for that person. So in order to sort of say, do these things and it'll sort your sleep out. Well, you can see there's a big difference between Terry and Marjorie there and they're going to need different approaches. That said, um, there are some core things and, and essentially what cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, which works for 70% of people who engage with it, NHS recommend this. No one's trained in delivering it, but part, that's what we do is go and train people and health professionals to deliver this stuff, to get the technology out there for people. So essentially all CBTI really is doing is, is, is educating people about here are all of the things that sleep likes and here are all of the things that sleep doesn't like. Now find as many opportunities as you can or with your client for their life to do all of the things that sleep likes and get rid of all of the obstacles. And if you optimize someone's opportunity for getting sleep, they get sleep because the bit of the brain that controls their sleep right in the middle of the hypothalamic part of the brain right in the middle is a, a couple of bulbs right at the back of it called the substantia nigra where your body clock's located and it feeds into your brain stem where other parts of the brain stem control sleep and wake and shifts between the different stages of sleep all of that core biology still works if it didn't if you had damage to that part of the brain you'd be dead so what would what would dealing with then with a sleep problem is, is an overlay of negative behaviors or, or thought patterns. Now, if we can, and those things are malleable, right? So if we can change those things, identify what the issues are, intervene in a positive way, get rid of those obstacles, that sleep's going to come back because those core mechanisms are intact. So it's about identifying what it is and then promoting optimal conditions. And the first thing sleep really likes is to be tired. So what you've done in the day before, is hugely important if you just sat inside staring at richard and judy all day <laughs> kill me now you know you're not you're not you're not going to be tired because you haven't done anything whereas if you've spent all day outside building a brick wall lifting rocks up and down or whatever you're going to be absolutely knackered and you're going to sleep well and there's two things there is the physical activity but it's also being outdoors and being exposed to natural daylight promotes the production and then release in the nighttime of melatonin in your brain and, and that melatonin is strong sleep promoter so spending time outside like what we're supposed to hunting for berries and stuff that's what we're supposed to do sat in front of richard and judy all day is not what we've evolved to do so it's about being natural and getting outdoors and being physically active and exposing yourself to natural daylight so that's the first thing is to try and look at for opportunities to do things like that. And then sleep loves a, a really strong, robust routine. Our, our circadian rhythms follow a, a 90 minute cycle in, in human adults. And when you change your routine by changing the clocks twice a year or shift work or jet lag, we all know what that feels like. It takes us a, <clears throat> a week or two to readjust and reset that. And that readjusting and resetting over 25 years causes all these negative health consequences that we see in shift workers for example so don't change your routine go to bed at the same time every night get up at the same time every morning do that weekdays and weekends sleep loves that so be active be outdoors have a good routine very simple things for people to do free of charge also you don't need to spend any money on that yeah 
and then you get rid of stuff. So nicotine is a stimulant. Uh, exercise too close to bedtime or a hot bath raises your blood temperature, your heart rate, your blood pressure. You need to calm down, physically cool down to go to sleep. If you're too hot, you can't get to sleep. So don't eat in the two hours before bed. Don't consume nicotine, too much fluid, alcohol. Um, all of these things can interfere with sleep. Flat screen, blue screen devices interfere with that melatonin release when it gets dark. That causes a problem with sleep. So a lot of the, the obstacles that we see now are kind of modern aberrations of our natural evolved lifestyle. We spend more time indoors, in front of computers, being stressed about stuff um, that actually we're not supposed to do any of that. We're just supposed to run around outside in loincloths looking for berries. That's what humans really are supposed to do, really, isn't it? After yeah. 10,000 years of evolution, it's only been a couple of hundred years where we've stopped doing that. And the big shifts have happened in the last 20, 30 years. We've become much more white collar, much more sedentary, consume mm. a lot more refined sugar than we ever did before causes weight gain over overweight people struggle more with their sleep as well their mood goes down they eat more they're less likely to go out you end up in a in a in a spiral a vortex going down in, in, mm. in a bad way so it, it's about trying to regain a kind of more natural approach to to your lifestyle um, and doing stuff outdoors good routine and avoiding those things that get in the way i mean there's a there's a very brief kind of yeah i suppose if, if that helps top stuff dave no absolutely top stuff um only only thought on that one was in terms of blue light it's something you mentioned earlier and i, I meant to ask you a question on it earlier so it, is that the theory behind why we see this in the you know the news blue light's terrible for your sleep is it because it's interrupting with your reducing your melatonin production which makes you less sleepy or something like that so the, 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 the understanding that we have at the moment, and, it, and it's evolving, and there are proponents of this, and there are opponents to this as well, um, but some of the core biology that we do know is that the melatonin is made best under conditions of blue light, light at the blue end of the spectrum. That's light that we get out of the sky in the morning times. As the day goes on, you have a red shift, and the red shift in the evening, red sky at night, that tells you your brain oh it's going to be dark soon you'll be going to bed soon we're going to stop making the melatonin we'll start getting ready to release it and then when the signal stops when it goes dark that signals your pineal gland which makes melatonin to release it and that's sleep promoting if you are looking at a blue screen device you're essentially telling your brain it's the morning make melatonin not it's the evening get ready to shut up and go to sleep and release the melatonin and that's the theory as to why these blue screen devices interfere with the melatonin production and secretion pathway. And there was a classic study done by Paul Greengrass out of the UCL in 2015. It's become quite a seminal study now called Bigger, Brighter, Bluer, Better? Question mark. And that they showed that you, the use of flat screen devices in the, in the two hours before bed inhibited the release of melatonin when it went dark at bedtime and, and, and caused negative, you know, led to poorer sleep in those people who use those devices too close to bedtime. And that's led on to that um, sort of recommendation that's then come out in the media that we should get away from these things in the two hours before bed. So, so that's where it comes from. Um, some of the opponents to that say, well, that's the effects are really marginal. They're only talking about 10 or 15 minutes difference. That doesn't really amount to an awful lot. And um, a counterpoint to that is 
uh, Munro's work in 1967, so ages ago in Science, another seminal paper, the psychological and physiological differences between good and bad sleepers. Um, and they, they show that actually you can take a good sleeper and just giving them, sorry, a poor sleeper, and just giving them 15 minutes more sleep a night will significantly reduce their um, <clears throat> negative reporting. They feel much better with quite a marginal, modest increase in sleep. So it, the opponents of the blue light say, thing that say, oh, only, only 10 minutes less isn't a big deal. Actually, it might be a big deal. Um, we, don't, we don't really fully understand it in, in detail yet. Um, so actually we've got a fairly quick and dirty two hour rule. Don't do that in the two hours before bed. So it fits with all the other things, nicotine, alcohol, drinking too much, exercise, hot baths, and now blue screens. So just try and get rid of all of that stuff in the two hours before bed to physically cool down and mentally cool down. And I suppose the other thing to say about it is it might not be a physiological thing. It could be a psychological thing. It's not necessarily, it might, it might, it's probably an interaction of both, but it might not actually be so much the blue light as it is the content of what's in the light. So if I've just read a, an email from my boss at 10 o'clock at night, that's going to stress me out and stop me getting to sleep. Or Terry said something nasty about me on Facebook. That's going to wind me up before I go to sleep. So there might be a more psychosocial element here that, at the, again, at the moment, is, is completely under-researched. Um, okay. So we've, we've still got quite a way to go to fully understand what's going on there in, in depth and detail. Mm. Um, but at the moment, it's looking like, yeah, get off the screen for a couple hours and talk to someone. Yeah. How hard can it be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, Dave, I, I, that's just been ultra fascinating. I just had a quick look at the at the clock. I can't believe we've, we've been going for a whole hour already. So, um, but I think that's a nice place to, to begin to wrap up just on those points of advice. I think, Dave, thank you for sharing those. Um, when you look ahead to the, you know, to the future for you yourself, uh, sleep unlimited, personal endeavors, you know, aspirations, I guess, what's on the future for you? What do you hope the future holds for sleep as well? Right, yeah, uh, personally and in the discipline, I mean, in the discipline, I think what we need is some regulation. I think we need some recognized training programs so that people who um, have a problem with their sleep have somewhere to go and someone who they can go to to trust. Hmm. I think that's something that we need to do. We need to raise awareness about this. We need to be taking this information into schools and teaching kids this so that we can be proactive. You know, you, you, sleep is a learned behavior. If you're a good sleeper, it's because your parents taught you to sleep properly. They did the right things. And if you're not, they did the wrong things through no fault of their own. They just didn't have that information. Mm -hmm. If we can get that information to parents, to schools, get kids sleeping well before they get older and struggle more, they, then we'll have a less of an issue with this in, in the future. I think I'd, I'd like to see more of that going on. Um, for, for us, I, our kind of mission statement has been um, teaching the world to sleep. I got asked to write a book about this stuff a few years ago uh, by Routledge and that's what the book's called. Um, and that that's really my, my motivation is, is to help to connect this technology in, that is really effective in CBT for insomnia to the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people that, that need that help. That's my, has been my mission for the last 10, 15 years. And I don't see that changing. Um, we, we're, we're in a better place to deliver that now. We've got a bit more of a, 
a profile people like yourself are aware of us now whereas you weren't before we were a team of 15 whereas five years ago we were two um you know we're, we're doing this more it, the more we can uh, get the word out there the, the the more people we can employ to to help spread it so i think that's uh, i i i did have a, a long period as, as an academic um teaching as a lecturer in psychology and sleep and statistics and stuff at universities um and I still do go into universities and teach this to clinical psychology trainees because they see a lot of sleep problems in the clients they work with when they're qualified. So, um, so I go into universities to teach them that, but still only 6% of the clean psych courses in the world have any sleep training on them, which is uh, bizarre still. <laughs> so I, I, it's, it's about raising awareness, wanting to do more of that. Um, and I, I don't want to go back to engineering or back to academia. You know, I've, I've done those things. I've, I've seen what it's about. And actually, I, I, I quite like my job in, in academia. It was it was it was good. You know, I think about 80 percent of it I quite liked and 20 percent of it was a bit of a faff and bureaucracy and stuff that I didn't really want, wasn't that interested in. Um, Whereas 95% of what I do now, I love it. It's fascinating daily basis. You've never short of something to talk about with someone, you know, everyone wants to, to know a bit more about it. And I love talking about it. Um, and 5% and is dealing with the tax man and the accountant. <laughs> no, no one is safe from that. So <laughs> I, think I, I think I'll take the balance, you know, 95% of the time I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I, I do a lot of it from home. I've been, you know, been able to homeschool four kids through the last year and, and keep doing this, which is been a challenge but also a blessing that we've been able to get through that here and I know a lot of other people have really struggled so I feel very lucky and uh, just going to carry on doing that and it, I just you know I don't earn a fortune doing this but I, I'm not doing it for the money I do it because I think it's really important and I love it and and um, you know it really thanks very much for you know asking me to come and talk to you about it because it's, you know, it's something I'm passionate about and having the, a bit of a forum to help spread the word a bit um, is, is, is great. That's what I'm about. It's incredible, Dave. I, uh, I remember, you know, thinking back to the start of this chat when I was saying, you know, the first time I heard you speak about sleep instantly, the, the kind of engagement value, your passion for, for this whole topic came through extremely strongly. And uh, given, you know, that there's still work to do, it sounds to me, Dave, like you, you're one of the, the best place people to, to start to make some of those change shifts happen. So basically, uh, Dave, thank you very, very much for the time today. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I have freaking loved it. Um, yeah, great. No, I could talk about this stuff all night. I love it. I could ask <laughs> questions about it all day. <laughs> so um, listen, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, very best for the future as well, Dave. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dan. No, good questions. I've enjoyed talking to you. So yeah, thanks again.